Maybe it's appropriate as we are celebrating our first Lord's Supper in the church for a long time that the passage we are going to consider from Mark's Gospel this morning is the sufferings uh, of Jesus Christ uh, beginning. Uh, What is normally called the passion of Christ. And it's not just what he endured on the cross, but as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the upper room where they celebrated the first ever communion. Uh, They are walking the half mile, maybe one mile, down from the city of Jerusalem uh, towards the Mount of Olives. And in order to get there, uh, they cross the Kidron Valley, and the Kidron Brook would have been in full flow at this time of year. And they cross over it, And they go to this beautiful spot, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, which would have been a private garden in Jesus's day. And he often resorted to this place uh, for uh, prayer and meditation. So it was a special place for him. Uh, Maybe you have such places. Um, It's well worth visiting. Uh, You've got these olive trees. They're not very uh, tall. Uh, They've got gnarled trunks and branches and we can imagine can't we uh, the times the precious times that Jesus would have spent uh, on his knees uh, in this place enjoying intimate communion with his father and yet this time all of that is a distant memory and I just want as we go into the communion look at three things about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that are just vital for us uh, this morning. Uh, Three things he went through. And uh, just before we come to the three, uh, we were given the details in the reading that he left the eight disciples uh, outside the garden. So there probably would have been a gate. It was an enclosed private garden and then he took his three closest disciples with him for moral support Peter James and John and he asked them to pray with him and then he went a stone's throw away to pray himself so they would have seen him and heard him right what I'm about to talk about the three things they were witnesses to it it was so sacred and awe-inspiring that not even the eight disciples were allowed to see it, but the three were. And how privileged we are this morning to be able to glimpse into the sacred hearts of Jesus Christ in this hour. You see, all throughout this gospel, we have been constantly told his hour had not yet come. Now the hour had come. The passion was about to begin. So three things. The first is this, Jesus' sorrows. Jesus' sorrows. As they were going downhill towards the valley of Kidron, they weren't just descending into a physical valley. A great sorrow descended upon Jesus Christ. Where are we told that? Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the verse verse 34 Jesus said to his disciples my soul is exceedingly sorrowful 
exceedingly sorrowful. How refreshing that Jesus isn't ashamed to open up about how he's feeling. Uh, maybe in our circle, uh, there's still an embarrassment when it comes to talking uh, about such things. But there's no sense of shame with Jesus Christ, and neither should there be with us, his people. The actual word that he used here uh, for sorrowful in the original, it means intense emotional suffering. Uh, and it's so intense because he has seen something that has shocked him. Imagine the Son of God who has seen everything, really. He's given a glimpse of something now that is so shocking that he doesn't know what to do. Uh, maybe if you have had some depression, uh, you will know that there's a cloud of darkness that comes over you, and you can't think straight. Multiply that by infinity, and you sense the kind of feelings that Jesus Christ is entering into. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And this is seen by the way he prays. Uh, in the Bible times, people would have stood up for prayer, right? That was the normal posture, apparently, for prayer. But here, Jesus first went on his knees. I'm bringing in the accounts from the other gospel as well. He first went on his knees, and then he was feeling so sorrowful, he went prostrate on the ground. He lied face down on the ground. And then in the letter to the Hebrews, we're even given an account of his praying here. He prayed with loud cries and tears. We don't often pray like that, do we? Loud cries and tears. And then in Luke's gospel, and Luke was a doctor, he even notes that he was in such agony, he was sweating drops of blood. That is a medical condition where once... Uh, sorrow can be so intense that that happens. Apparently, it happened to some soldiers in the trenches during the First World War. The sorrows of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has a glimpse of something that is so dark, so horrible, that even he doesn't know what to do. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Who was the most sorrowful prophet in the Old Testament? Do you know? Jeremiah. Don't you love Jeremiah? I, I think he's one of the greatest uh, characters in the Bible. And he wrote a short book after his main book called Lamentations. And to lament is something you do when you're sorrowing. And he wrote these words, which are prophetic, pointing to Jesus Christ. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there was any sorrow like my sorrow. That's Jesus Christ. All we that have a glimpse at him in the garden, face down, sorrowful, Enveloped in darkness. Is it nothing? Is it nothing? 
It's tragic, isn't it, that the three closest disciples whom he had brought with him to pray together with him, to uphold him in prayer before the uh, worst uh, and darkest event of his whole life, the crucifixion, what are they doing? They're not praying, are they? Three times Jesus goes to them and he finds them fast asleep. Now, we may sympathize with them because they'd been up all night, but... How tragic. They are unconcerned. They're asleep. At this hour, when Jesus Christ is about to enter his passion. Are we any better, I wonder? Uh, how are we when we're confronted with the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which we'll look at in a minute? Does it affect us, or are we unmoved by it? Uh, when we contemplate what Jesus is going to endure on the cross, hell! What, what are we like when we think of hell? Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than he ever did about heaven. What effect does that have upon us? Does it cause us to be concerned? Concerned for our own souls. There's a day when we have to die. And is it hell or heaven that's going to await us? And what about the concern for others? A burden. Have you ever driven uh, to Aberystwyth, the scenic routes? Uh, there, there is a route that goes through a place called Tally. Have you, have you been there, Tally? Uh, there's uh, a little cottage in Tally, which is, uh, or was, a blacksmith's uh, workshop. And the blacksmith who lived there many, many moons ago was called Thomas Lewis. And he was a Christian. So we can imagine Thomas Lewis working in his, uh, 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 I don't know what you call a place where a blacksmith works. Uh, and we can imagine him hammering. And he's a believer. And he wrote in Welsh, but I've got it in English here. Recalling his sweat as of blood. There he is in his workshop. His groans in the garden outpoured. His back with deep furrowings ploughed when he's going to be whipped. His grief from his father's own sword. His going to Calvary's hill to be nailed to the cross by his love. Recalling what tongue can be still, what heart but with pity shall move. The sorrow of Jesus. Isn't there something in us that's just moved a bit? Uh, as uh, you have in the hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The chorus, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Jesus' sorrows. And then what made him so sorrowful? My second point is Jesus' sufferings. His sufferings. This is the beginning of the passion. So when we are told that by his stripes we are healed, that's not just a reference to what he did on the cross. It's talking about what he endured uh, with the Roman soldiers, which happened before he went to the cross. And even here in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's about... 
10, 15 hours before he's going to be hung on that cross. But even now, he's beginning to suffer. That, that's what's causing the sorrow. That's the glimpse he's being given, which is really perplexing him and shocking him. Now, he uses a phrase. Look at verse 36, I think. He uses a phrase, the cup. Take this cup away from me. That's the motif here, the cup of suffering. The Father is giving him a cup. When he's going to go to the cross, he's going to drink a cup. And the thought of this makes him want to say, no, thank you. Why? What's so unique about the sufferings of Jesus Christ? As emphasized by the cup. It was a cup of death. My heart is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. What would you feel like if you knew you were going to be dead by the end of today? I think if I wasn't a Christian... <laughs> I would be extremely sorrowful. Uh, we heard uh, of someone going to glory the other day, just an ordinary Christian, and they were diagnosed with terminal cancer, and they said to the doctor, it's all right. I have peace with God. Now, wh when you read about uh, the early Christians dying, they, they weren't like Jesus Christ here. Uh, if you think of uh, the martyrs going into the arena to face the lions, and they considered it a crown. Uh, one of the first martyrs, Stephen, uh, when he was stoned to death, his face was like, like an angel's face. He, he was blessed. But Jesus Christ isn't. Why? It's not just a cup of death, it's a cup of sin. It's a cup of sin. Jeremiah, again, prophesying about this. He calls this cup wormwood and the water of gall. Bitter, bitter. What made this cup uh, so horrible in the contemplation of it uh, for Jesus Christ was the fact that it was our sin. That's why there was death in it. The wages of sin is death. Do you know what Gethsemane means? Gethsemane means oil press. So all these olive oil uh, trees, uh, uh, the olive would have been pressed to get the oil. Jesus Christ was weighed down. Even now, he's beginning to carry the burden of your sin and mine. Uh, J.C. Ryle. It was a sense of the enormity of the load of human guilt which began at that time to press upon him in a peculiar way. It was a sense of the unutterable weight of our sins and transgressions which were then especially laid on him. He was being made a curse for us. He was bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. He was 
being made sin for us, who himself knew no sin. He'd never tasted sin before. We know, don't we, when we do wrong, uh, even if the temptation makes us want to sin, afterwards, what does it feel like? It feels horrible, a guilty conscience. Jesus had never felt that. But now he is about to taste the sin of an infinite number of people. Think of all the bad things that you've done and put them all together. And that, that's just a drop. King David crossed the Kidron when he was fleeing from Absalom, who uh, took over in a coup. And King David was sorrowful as he crossed the Kidron because he was bearing the guilt of a nation. Now David's greater son has crossed the Kidron and he's even more sorrowful because he's bearing the guilt of a people. Ezekiel says this cup is not just a cup of bitter gall, but it's a cup of desolation. A cup of desolation. That's what our sin causes. Uh, yes, the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. Body and soul separated. The body goes to the ground to be food for worms. The soul goes on forever. Hell or heaven. But ultimately the separation is the separation between us and God. That's what hell is. Even in this fallen world, uh, there is the goodness of God stopping it from becoming a hell. But in hell, God takes away his restraining hand. Desolation. Jesus Christ has been abandoned by his disciples. Even the three closest are fast asleep. Well, you will say they're not against him. They're not going to be responsible for his crucifixion. They're not. But they've abandoned him at his hour of greatest need. Peter, who claimed just about an hour ago, I will follow you even unto death. He repeated that. Where is Peter now? Fast asleep on the ground. And he's going to deny him uh, uh, in a few more hours. Three times. Uh, John who had leaned on his bosom in the Last Supper, a sign of love. John now is leaning asleep, fast asleep. Uh, James, James, who said not that long ago he was willing to drink of the same cup of suffering as his master. Where is he now? Fast asleep with friends like these who needs enemies. <laughs> But do you know what was worse? Jesus now is abandoned by his father. It didn't just happen in the three hours on the cross. That's where it happened in an ultimate sense. The father is already beginning to turn away from his son. Jesus had experienced perfect union with his father from eternity. And now, for the first time ever, from eternity now. He's being abandoned. Uh, Donald MacLeod says, For all its darkness, Gethsemane is not, is not the darkness. It is but the shadow of Calvary. At the last, there will be no Abba. Jesus in his prayer cries, Abba, Father. 
there's still an intimacy there. But the Father is beginning to go away. But on the cross there will be no more Abba, but only the despairing cry of Eloi. Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? The cup of desolation. And you know what makes hell, hell? It's not just the fact that God isn't there, that he's abandoned people. All ye that enter here, abandon all hope, could be said of hell. That's not what makes hell, hell. God is in hell in another sense, because his wrath is there in full force. You know, we preachers, we should shirk like Jesus Christ with the cup here when we talk about the wrath of God because it's so awesome. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, when he was asked once, what will happen to people who haven't heard of Jesus Christ? Francis Schaeffer, the great mind, uh, couldn't answer. He just wept. He just wept. Isaiah calls this cup the dregs of my fury with a capital M. The wrath of God for our sin is in this cup. Have you um, seen the programme on Chernobyl? Uh, the disaster happened, I think, in 1986. And the name Chernobyl apparently comes from a black plant which is wormwood, apparently. Uh, and when the nuclear plants or one of the reactors exploded, it poisoned the water with radioactivity. So they became bitter waters. And some Christians took that as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But when the reactor first exploded, the people in charge didn't think that the reactor had exploded. They never believed that a nuclear reactor in the Soviet Union could explode. So they sent one of the engineers to the roof of the adjacent building to look down to where the reactor had been to make sure that it had exploded. And the guy knew that he was putting his life in danger, and he was forced to go. The soldiers forced him to go. And he only looked down over the edge for one second, but that cost him his life. A few weeks later, he was dead from radioactive poisoning, from radiation. What Jesus Christ is doing in Gethsemane, my friends, is looking over the edge of hell, on the cross, he's going to descend into hell and take the full fury of God's wrath for our sins. If you think of the uh, poison of radioactivity, uh, the poison of sin is infinitely worse. And Jesus, even the perfect son of God, shirks, shrinks back. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Praise God, he didn't shrink back. He went all the way. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be here. 
uh, I quoted to him uh, last time I was preaching from Mark, and apparently it is in our new supplements. And it starts with these words. Listen to this. Oh, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead. Didst bear all ill for me. A victim led. Thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Hallelujah. I, I'm free from the burden of guilt because Jesus Christ has taken that for me. Have you laid your sin on Jesus Christ? That's what you do when you become a Christian. And then the hymnist goes on to say, death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ. It was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. It is empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draft for me. Praise God, the cup which we now drink from, even if it's the cup of suffering, it's never the cup of the wrath of God. Never again will we have to suffer uh, for our sins. Jesus Christ has drank the cup down to the last dregs. Have you seen it? Substitution. He suffered and died so that we don't have to. Jesus' sorrows, Jesus' sufferings, and then Jesus' submission. Jesus' submission. What makes the sufferings of the Savior for us most amazing of all, I think, is the fact that he willingly undertook it. In the Old Testament, when the lambs were slain on the altar, they weren't given a choice, were they? <laughs> I, I don't think an animal could be given a choice. They, they, they were led. They were forced. What's happening in the garden here is that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, the perfect human being, is given a choice. He's given a choice. If it be possible. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians ever, 18th century North America, he's got a famous sermon on this, the agonies of Christ. And he wrote, Therefore God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace of God's wrath, that he might look in and stand and see its raging flames and see where he was going and voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. If Jesus, Edward says, did not full know before he took it and drank it, it would not properly have been his own act as a human being. But when he took that cup, knowing what he did, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. Would we have done it for such people? 
I mentioned the three. <laughs> they were fast asleep. Jesus Christ was willing to take their hell. So much he loved them. All of the disciples were going to scatter and abandon him. But he didn't abandon them. Who was the greatest of the apostles? He wasn't around at this point. He was chosen later. He was Saul of Tarsus, a man who was a sworn enemy of Christ. And yet he loved him and he suffered for his sins. And we only have to look at ourselves, even those of us who are believers, and look at the way we've treated Jesus Christ over all these years. And he has loved us still. Edward goes on to say, Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love, a flood of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of sin. It doesn't matter how great your sin may be, the love of Jesus Christ is greater Oh, Jesus, full of grace and truth, more full of grace than I of sin. Praise be to God. And then Edward says, those great drops of blood that fell down to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. As the hymnist says, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Can you see? The sorrows, the sufferings, because it was willing submission on Christ's part is wonderful. Can can you say it sometimes, not often, but it sometimes causes me to tremble for me? And then as I conclude, I think this is important. In terms of the submission, it was in a garden that this happened. Why am I emphasizing that? It was in a garden after God had created the world that the first Adam was given a choice. Obey me and live. And he didn't. He took of the fruit of a tree. And this is why we're in the mess we're in. Sin entered the world and death through sin. That's why Christ had to come. The first Adam, and we are all in Adam, just as a rugby team. Uh, We're not doing very well, are we, at the moment? The Welsh rugby team. What do we say after we've lost? We say, we lost. Were you playing? I wasn't. But we still say we lost. They're representing us. And Adam was representing humanity. And because Adam took the fruit of the tree, we all fell and lost. And God in his love sends another person. This is substitution now. The second Adam. And because he's going to win, he's not called the second, but the last Adam. Because there's no need for another to come. And isn't it significant that it's in a garden that the last Adam is given a choice? Obey me 
and die. Take the fruits of the tree. That's what Jesus Christ is going to do on the cross. The cross is called the tree. Um, There's a poet called George Herbert. Some of you may be familiar with him. He says this, O all ye who pass by, that's us, behold and see, man, Adam, stole the fruit. And this is what Christ does. But speaking of himself, I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me was ever grief like mine. So the first Adam, he as it were, took from the tree and died. Now the last Adam comes and he's contemplating ascending the tree, the cross. And yes, dying, but through dying, bringing life to you and to me. Uh, Well, what is our response? Can you say, To a measure, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. And even though it's an awesome sight, what happened in Gethsemane, it's also joyful. Because he has tasted that cup so that we will never have to taste it. And we are an evangelical church, which means we've got an evangel, good news, to share with a dying world. Oh, may we never go further than this cross. I am not ashamed. May we not be ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're now going to uh, sing, Here is love, vast as the ocean, and that will then lead us into communion. So if you can remain seated uh, to sing uh, this hymn as we prepare our hearts and minds for the partaking of the elements. Please don't sing out loud, uh, but sing Uh, from your heart.
Our Father in heaven, we just praise thee uh, for the uh, love of Jesus Christ, uh, that uh, love uh, displayed on the cross, but even in the garden, uh, manifesting itself in uh, the drops of blood that he was sweating. Oh, we thank thee, Lord, that in each droplet uh, there is more love uh, than in this whole world and enough love uh, to uh, cover all of our sins. Oh, we thank thee, Father, uh, that there is no more condemnation to them who are now in Christ Jesus. Uh, in that last Adam, we praise thee, O God, that by faith we have been joined, not having our own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ. And may every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, know what it is uh, to completely uh, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Oh, Father, as we come now to this thy table, we are not worthy. Uh, as uh, the Book of Common Prayer says, Father, we are not even worthy to uh, pick up the crumbs that fall from off the table. But we just praise thee that he is worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And we just thank thee uh, for those words, for me, for me. Oh, Father, we thank thee that he did not have to die for his own sin because he had none. That he suffered for sin. He suffered hell, uh, death. Uh, oh, for me. Oh, Lord, uh, forgive us for treating these things so lightly and just uh, touch our hearts by thy Spirit now and may Calvary love uh, overwhelm us and may we, like Thomas Lewis, uh, not be able to help but speak about Jesus Christ. Uh, oh, hear us then and draw near to us uh, for we pray in his name. Amen.